Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Sean, a four-year-old child living with his parents in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco, California, in 1969, was the star of a short film about his life. He spoke openly about his free-spirited parents, his crash pad home, watching cops bust heads, and smoking pot. Ralph Arlick made the film while a student at San Francisco State University. Thirty years later, he located Sean and his family and created the film Following Sean. Ralph Arlick, our guest in this edition of Radio Curious, has produced and directed more than a dozen prize-winning films. Following Sean is as much about Ralph Arlick's life as it is about Sean's. It will be shown at the Mendocino Film Festival, held in Mendocino, California, the first weekend of June 2012, where Arlick will receive the Albert Maisel's Award for Excellence in Documentary Filmmaking. Ralph Arlick and I visited by phone from his home in Poughkeepsie, New York on May 14, 2012. We began our conversation when I asked him how following Sean also became a story of his own life. I didn't start out uh, with that in mind, but the longer it went, the more the more personal it became. As the film evolved, you know, when I would show it, when I would show various cuts to people, they would, you know, say, who's this about? It's about Sean, it's about you, you know, sort of it became the, uh, the central dilemma of the film. Uh, and there was an imbalance. And, and uh, you know, finally somebody said to me, you know, you've either got to be completely in or out. You can't, you can't just dip your toe in. You can't just be a little bit in it. And then once we, once we sort of accepted that and figured that out, I think then we found a way to make it work. Was Sean a, a constant recollection in your life that drew you to putting this film together? Well, you know, it's always, uh, it, with, with all our memories, it's, it's, um, it's, always, it's always not clear whether uh, it's your own memory or it's what, you know, like in many cases, your parents have said to you. And in my case, it's never clear whether it's my own memories or that film that I made back in the, back in the late 60s which sort of you know ha, had a life and and uh, was part of my you know my history and my resume so um yeah he was always lurking back there I think and from time to time people would say geez it'd be interesting to see what whatever happened to Sean you know that would really be and you know it was just I never never seriously considered it. I just, uh, you know, I was doing something else, and I thought, you know, I've done that already. I don't want to go back and do that again. But then at some point, and I guess when I started thinking about it, it was, uh, I don't know, some some major anniversary. I don't know whether it was Woodstock or some, you know, people began to be talking a lot about the 60s. Uh, it, It became sort of, uh, much more prominent and uh, seemed like it suddenly seemed like a good idea. As a teaser, without giving away too much, tell us about the film that you made at San Francisco State that you just referred to. Well, 
it was uh, it was a 15 minute film, uh, and uh, I was looking for a topic, and I was living in this uh, right in the middle of Haight Ashbury on Cole Street in San Francisco, and uh, Sean, this four year old kid who lived on the you know I lived on the first floor, and on the third floor was uh, I guess what would be referred to as a crash pad, uh, an interesting, very vibrant family with this uh, charming, precocious four-year-old who would come downstairs every once in a while and visit me. We'd have these very nice conversations, and I thought, geez, he might make a a good subject for a a movie. So I I sat him down on my couch one day, and it was the first time I'd ever shot sync sound, you know, sound with, you know, film with, with accompanying sound, and I had no sound, man. It was just me and the camera on a tripod and Sean sitting on the couch. And uh, I actually debated whether or not I was going to pre-interview him. That was a concept that was sort of often batted about uh, in those days and probably still is. I think a lot of filmmakers still pre-interview people to find out if they'll make a good subject or not. I decided not to, again, because of some of the rules of cinema verite, which, you know, in, in... a true practitioner of cinema verite would never pre-interview somebody. It, it drains all the spontaneity out of out of the actual interview. Uh, but I was so lucky that I had made that decision because he, you know, even though he was a precocious four-year-old, he had the attention span of a four-year-old, and he got sick of it, you know, after about 20 minutes. So uh, I just, I, I, you know, I, I just. I was winging it and just had, you know, just uh, exactly 20 minutes of uh, of this, what turned out to be a very provocative and nice uh, interview. So how long after that interview in 1969 was it that you were able to talk with Sean again? I talked with him once or twice over the years. Uh, we really didn't uh, have much contact. I had more contact with his grandmother, Hun his uh, uh, famously uh, communist uh, grandmother, who was really the kind of center of that family. And uh, I would talk to her, talk with her from time to time, and uh, and she would give me news about... So she gave me news about Sean, but I didn't really have uh, much direct contact with Sean until I got in touch with him uh, with the idea of trying to remake the movie. And when was that? Uh, that would have been 95, I think, 1995. And what was his reaction when you called up and said, I'm Ralph, remember me? <laughs> oh, he remembered me. It was, I, because again, you know, the, the film, this film had been lurking in the background and, you know, the people, people in the family had copies of it. And, and, uh, so, you know, he certainly, uh, again, I don't know if he actually remembered the real me or he just knew the filmmaker who who had made this movie about him. Um, he was sort of said, sure, why not? I mean, uh, and he said, he said something interesting. He said, I wouldn't mind sending the record straight <laughs> because, you know, film, film always distorts, you know, it's, uh, it's never, it's, it's never an accurate picture of who somebody is or what's going on. It's always a selection, a particular, you know, the filmmaker's perspective. And uh, I think, you know, he, you know that, that original film, you know, people had all kinds of reactions. They were like, oh, isn't it horrible? Look at this kid. He's going to grow up to be a monster. Uh, he's going to be a drug addict. And 
So he he was all for it. And the other thing about not only about Sean but about that whole family is that they they really are not worried about about uh, how they're going to come off. So I don't think he had any apprehension about you know if I made another film whether he would come off a certain way, looking good, uh, looking stupid, whatever. He he sort of there's a lot of equanimity in Sean and and, and his whole family, and they just tend to take things in stride. So when you say set the record straight, what was Sean's perspective or interpretation of what was not straight? Well, I, I, that never that was never quite clear, but I think, you know, I think he he probably knew that the original movie was, you know, a, a somewhat sensationalized look at uh, at, the, at their lives and uh, he didn't look at his life that way, you know. I mean, you know, no, it was. I remember back in the '60s that you know nobody called called themselves a hippie. You know, hippie was a media word. So you know, uh, and uh, the original f- film made him look like a hippie kid. You know, he was always described as a hippie kid. You know, well, you don't. Nobody sees himself uh, according to the label that that uh, tends to get pasted onto him. So I think he sort of welcomed the idea of a more rounded portrait, although he probably knew or should have known that even an hour and a half about about him is not going to, it's it's still not going to be accurate. It's still not going to, you know, it's never, the portrait is never going to be the you who you see in the mirror. It's always, it's always skewed in some way. When there's a concept of a hippie kid, one of the striking moments was the casual aspect with which a four-year-old had access to marijuana. How was that yeah. received? First of all, you know, it was a different time, and so uh, a, a lot of the um, sort of dangers or perceived dangers of uh, of pot smoking were not so prominent. And it also depends on where you were. You know, remember, we were living in the hate, you know, so... In Middle America, as much of Middle America as got to see this film, which probably wasn't a whole lot, you know, people were shocked. Uh, but in the world that Sean and his family and I lived in, there was nothing particularly uh, sensational about it. I mean, it wasn't that common for four-year-olds to talk about these things with such aplomb and, and casualness. But, you know, in the hate, you know, People would not be particularly alarmed by this. They might think it was sort of neat or cute or funny or whatever. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Ralph Arlick, the maker of the film Following Sean, that's going to be shown at the Mendocino Film Festival the first weekend of June in Mendocino, California. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Ralph Arlick, the film ends with Sean being a very successful electrician and active in the electricians' union in San Francisco and wanting to go to law school. Did he ever finish and become a lawyer? He didn't. Uh, he thought about it for a while, but uh, at some point I, he, he told me that he, he went and talked to a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, and his impression was that the guy spent most of his time shuffling papers. 
And uh, I think he began to feel that that really wasn't for him. And then, you know, I think the longer you're, you're, you're vested in the union, uh, the harder it is to walk away. You know, I mean, I think uh, he makes a good living. Uh, I think he likes what he does. And um, I just, I don't think he, he ever really felt a strong draw uh, to do that. Even though, you know, he liked, he liked history and he liked, you know, he liked his pre-law coursework uh, at, uh, at Berkeley. Uh, I don't think he ever really felt a passion to be a lawyer. I think he's, I think he's probably right. I think he's probably much happier uh, as an electrician, and he's also a teacher. He teaches uh, classes to uh, novice electricians, so uh, he's in good shape. You know more about the changes in your life. Can you share some of those with us? One of the problems of the film is that I didn't have. Uh, uh, a lot of any, almost any footage of Sean's life in between that that span of time, and that was one of the real challenges of having how to cover all. You know, I didn't have any footage of him growing up, whereas I did have whole movies of of me growing up and uh, our kids and uh, and our lives. Um, changes. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I. You know, we lived a fairly sedate, consistent life. You know, my, my wife taught at Vassar. We lived in Poughkeepsie. We lived in the same house for 40 years. So it it all feels fairly calm and consistent and boring. <laughs> Which leads would leave one to ask, so why is that worthy of a movie? You know, I don't know. That's I my mean, question. Uh, because what you said earlier is that this movie is as much about you as it is about Sean. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what made me think that my that my my boring, consistent uh, uh, life would uh, be an apt subject uh, for half the film. But you know, I think it's um, in all the films that I've made, I've tried to I've tried to wrestle with issues that I think that I think about, and that I think probably a lot of other people think about too. You know, so. That's, I guess, the theory that even though there hasn't been anything spectacular about my life, um, that I I try to come to grips with the same kinds of questions that nag at other people, and that if you can do that in uh, a sort of uh, straightforward and um, uh, fairly uh, honest and hopefully humorous way, that uh, people will respond to it. I mean, I did, you know, I did do a few things that maybe not everybody else did. I went to the Peace Corps. I was in Africa for a couple of years. Uh, I, I was a journalist for a while. Um, but, you know, all in all, it was pretty, uh, pretty average. The other side of my question about your life is the question that you just posed, that it was difficult to deal with the challenges because you didn't have contact with Sean. What were those challenges? How did you deal with them? Uh, well, I had no footage of his growing up. So uh, I guess, I, guess I, I confronted it in two ways. One is uh, sticking myself in there. <laughs> so that kind of... I had, I had, as I said, all that footage of, of my own evolution. 
but uh, we also used um, home movies of, uh, of other people's uh, home movies, uh, which were sort of served as stand-ins for what happened in Sean's life. Uh, I had some footage, some 8mm footage of, uh, that, that Sean's father, Johnny, had, had taken. But other than that, uh, I just had general 60s footage. And what I found, because I did a lot of archival research for this film, and what I found was the best stuff came not from the standard archival houses that are set up to provide filmmakers with uh, archival footage, but stuff that was shot by other filmmakers during the 60s uh, who I... I made contact with, and in most cases, their stuff was, from my point of view, much richer, much better, uh, and and not so familiar, you know. I mean, we've all seen shots of people dancing in the streets of Haight-Ashbury and sticking flowers in the guns of, of uh, you know, troops, and, you know, all, all those sort of cliched images of, uh, of the 60s. So I found what what was much better for this film was uh, footage that I was able to get from uh, other filmmakers. To what extent would you describe how you were able to juxtapose the difference in your reality versus Sean's reality? Obviously, uh, you were 26 years older than he when the first film uh, was put together in 1969. Well, it was uh, the differences were stark. I mean... <clears throat> Basically, I was just an observer, you know. I, I was living in the hate, but I was really sort of watching it, you know. I was a student at San Francisco State. Uh, I had always had sort of a sociological take on things, so I, I wasn't exactly an anthropologist, but I was, you know, I was both living there and experience, experiencing the hate, but at the same time, uh, I was watching it whereas Sean and his family were really living it. And the film is partly about that distinction, the difference between being a watcher and being a participant. Because um, whatever conclusions you may draw about Sean and his family, uh, and when I say his family, I mean not only him and his parents, but the next generation, uh, Hun and Arch Brown, the uh, prominent Bay Area communists, whatever you're, you know, whether you're, you know, a flaming liberal or an arch-conservative uh, socially, uh, you have to admit that they did it. You know, they really plunged into the 60s full force. Whereas most of us didn't. You know, most of us kind of watched it, either on TV or, in my case, uh, in Cole Street. But we really weren't fully uh, participating in what was going on then. When you say you weren't fully participating... What was the reluctance? Did you feel it at the time, or is that a, a retrospective analysis? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I remember always having the feeling, though, that I wasn't like most of the residents of Haight-Ashbury, even though I really enjoyed a lot of what was, what was going on there. I don't know. I think I've always been a watcher, observer. It's probably why I'm a filmmaker. Um, so... Uh, but I don't. I, I, I can't be sure to what extent uh, I was that conscious. 
uh, of my role as a watcher. Certainly much more as I started to make the film and thought about it. Let's move to the Albert Maisel's Award and your anticipatory thoughts about receiving it. Well, it's, uh, it feels wonderful because, because, you know, Maisel's was one of my primary models. Uh, I got into film. I was at Columbia Journalism uh, when I was first introduced to film. And the way I was introduced to it is that, you know, Columbia was pretty, was when I went there in 66, it was, it was very print oriented. Film and television were just getting started. Uh, but there was a, a professor there, uh, who was getting very excited about film himself. And, uh, with no, I mean, he had been a print guy and his name was Larry Pinkham. And with no particular training, he just threw himself into the New York documentary cinema verite scene. And a few of us uh, sort of went along with him and caught the bug. And he would contact these filmmakers who were doing really exciting things. And one of those uh, was um, Albert and David, David Maisels, who were just beginning to make uh, their landmark films. And so... You know, we went down to their studios and met them, and they told us what they were doing. And, uh, you know, this was about, I don't know, five or six of us. And it was just thrilling. I mean, the the way they were changing uh, the notions of what a documentary film could be was just really, really interesting and stimulating. He was really the model. Until, as I <laughs> you know, I... Uh, I decided to put some narration uh, narration into my films, and then I then I departed from uh, the way he was working. But you know, for the first, I would say, fifteen years of my filmmaking, uh, the way the way uh, Al made films was really the way uh, I was trying to do it. What was the example that Al Maisel's provided you as a model that you followed for fifteen years? Well, all the precepts of direct cinema or cinema verite, whereas you don't, you know, you don't uh, ask people to do things. You just, you know, you just follow along and let them be who they are. Uh, you, um, you don't, you know, we don't script. You don't uh, pre-interview. Uh, you try to be flexible, and even though you may have started out with one idea, you go. You go with whatever uh, begins to unfold. Uh, you know all all those uh, all those things that uh, the Maisels and Leacock Pennybaker and the other practitioners of, of that kind of filmmaking were were doing in those days was just. I mean, it seems kind of obvious now, but they really you know they sort of set the tone for a, a new way of. Uh, of thinking about documentary and, and uh, what it could do. It sounds a little bit like a Radio Curious interview. Yeah. <laughs> Ralph Ehrlich, we want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about uh, a eureka or an aha moment in your life that stuck with you, that has influenced the way you have lived since then? Um. I don't know about lived. I would say in terms of uh, work, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of ironic because we're talking, you know, this, the, I guess the, the reason for this interview is, is Al Maisel's and one of the tenets of, of Maisel's and people who did Cinema Verite was that there would be no narration. And for years I, I labor, labored under that 
that stricture. You know, you never use narration in films. It's verboten. You know, you can't do it. It's uh, it's false. It's phony. Uh, and then, and then, and consequently, I would struggle mightily to sort of make clear to the re- to the viewer what was going on in the film without any narration. And then once I tried it, and that really was a eureka moment. It was wow, this is. I really like this uh, because you can, in a few words, you can just make clear something, and then you can move on and do really what's what you really want to do, what's essential. So that was a major uh, to sort of break that taboo and to use narration in films uh, was a really kind of a watershed moment for me, uh, and affected everything I did thereafter. In following Sean, there's a great deal of narration. So that's right. an example of what it's, you do. It, it, it's, it's lousy with narration, full of narration. Um, and, you know, some people, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea. I mean, especially first-person narration, that's, uh, that's, that will turn off uh, some people. But uh, it's, it's what I do now, uh, what I'm comfortable doing. Can you tell us what you would like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Ah, big question. Um, well, I'd like to keep making films, although it seems to be becoming increasingly difficult. Uh, or I, to put it another way, I guess it's, uh, I'm not sure that I'm any longer prepared. You know, it took 10 years to make Following Sean. And, you know, endless fundraising and, and grant after grant after grant. I'm not, I don't, I don't think I want to do that anymore. So either I want to make uh, smaller, more limited films, or I've also begun to do uh, some radio. Uh, I, I like audio work because, as I said, you know, I I now stick a lot of narration into my films. So I'm thinking, uh, why not just do the narration and <laughs> forget about all that fundraising for you know all that's required to uh, to put images with it. Um, so I mean, I'm I've begun to do some of that. Uh, other than that, we've uh, we've recently moved to a much more rural area, and uh, I've been doing a lot of landscaping and gardening, uh, which I love, and uh, I want to do more than that, more of that. And finally, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Well, you know, there's sort of a, a nexus between a book and a film. I, I just saw a film, Patience. Uh, after Sebald. Uh, Sebald is a, a German novelist uh, who's written uh, a number of books that are, are, are widely appreciated. Um, this film was about um, his book, uh, The Rings of Saturn, and it's an incredibly inventive documentary. It's never illustrative, you know, like if he should say, uh, if what's being re- heard on the, on the track is, you know, Sebald-like birds... You would not see shots of birds. You'd see something else. You know, I always, I hate when when documentaries are illustrative in that way. But this was anything but. It was very inventive. Uh, really, a, a remarkable way to do uh, a, a Talking Heads documentary. Well, Ralph Harlick, I thank you again for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> Filmmaker Ralph Arlick has produced more than a dozen prize-winning films, including Following Sean, which will be shown at the Mendocino Film Festival the first weekend of June 2012 in Mendocino, California. 
the film that Ralph Arlick recommends is Patience After Seabald, a British film by Grant G. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541 and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.